About 2,500 years ago, uh, Israel, under Ezra, uh, built a wooden platform, brought out the scriptures, the Torah scroll, and began reading them systematically and explaining them to the people to give the sense of what they meant. That process has been going on since that time. And about just under 2,000 years ago, uh, the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian congregation began to also be read in that context of the services. So we've begun our examination of the letters of Paul to the Corinthians. The letters intended by Paul to be read in the churches, as we saw in our introduction. And so we continue that tradition uh, ourselves. And our goal is to understand them in the context of that day that they were written, and also how they apply appropriately in our own context by examining the text and what those who have, said, have gone before us have said about, about these texts. I looked at Paul as the author and the city of Corinth and this, its place in the New Testament. And we looked at the initial verses to see that God had called us, along with all who believe in the Lord, to be saints. We considered the meaning of that, being holy, being saints, sanctified. To be set apart from the world and dedicated to the purpose of God. A purpose that brings us together as believers in Christ, in local congregations, in households, and in larger convocations from time to time. I concluded that message with the claim that the theme of this book is unity, and I want to talk about that today as we begin looking at the, the main text of the, uh, of the letter. It's clear in the section that we examine today that that's what he's talking about, but I'm going to demonstrate that that's his theme all through the entire uh, book. There are three great commandments. That we love God with our whole self, as we did the Shema today in the service, you, you saw that commandment. The second commandment is that we love our neighbor as ourself. And the new commandment, the third one, uh, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. These commandments are the general uh, instructions of God and all the other commandments fit into those categories. That first one is a call to holiness, to separation unto God. The second commandment is a call to righteousness, to do the right thing in our relationship with other people. And the third one is a call to unity. Uh, loving one another is to be unified. And that is really the theme here. Now Paul talks about this in more detail. And I addressed this before, but it's been a couple of weeks, so I want to bring it up again. If you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at the first seven verses real quickly. Because this is, an, this is an important theme. It's one that I don't think we live well. We have a tendency to believe that our unity is based on having the same theology. That's important, but that's not the basis of our unity. Um, and uh, Paul addresses this in several of his letters. So he says 
in this letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling wherewith you have been called. Now, the calling he's talking about is this being called to Christ, and being called to Christ is to separate from the world and to be set apart for God's purpose. That calling to be a saint, that calling to Christ, is the calling that the Scripture tells us about. We have a tendency today to think of calling as everything. I'm called to be a pastor. Bible doesn't talk about that. I'm called to be uh, you know, a musician. I'm called to be a plumber. All that kind of thing. That notion of calling is Christian, but it's not necessarily biblical. The Bible uses the word calling with the few exceptions of the calling of a prophet and the calling of an apostle where there is a miraculous calling that takes place, not some feeling in the mind and heart. It uses the word calling for us being called to Christ. And that's our calling. And Paul says, I want you to walk worthy. It's an interesting phrase. To walk worthy, if you think of a scale, the old scales of the time of the apostles and biblical times, you had this, these scales, and you'd put a weight on one side, and then you'd put whatever product or item you were doing until it became even, and that made it worthy of the same worth as the weight. Paul says, I want you to walk in a manner that is equal in weight to the calling that you've been given to come to Christ. That's a significant thing. So having said that, he says, with humility and gentleness and patience, remember those words as we look at the Corinthian letter, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But, interesting, but to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, in that phrase, Paul is stating that there is this one, and then there is this diversity of the grace given to us in terms of our giftedness and other items that have to be maintained within this larger structure of unity. And Paul is going to talk about that all through the Corinthian letter, but I wanted you to see that it's not just the Corinthians, because the Corinthians have a problem, and the tendency for commentators is to think that Paul's giving them a message about their problem. He's giving them the message that is the message, which had they paid attention to, they wouldn't have the problem. Okay? So, be careful about thinking that this is a unique problem to the Corinthians. So, now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up at verse... I'm going to read the first two verses and then we'll go from there. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind 
and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So Paul's saying, look, I want you guys on the same page here. He's been informed by some of the members of the congregation that they're kind of dividing up into little cliques. And those cliques are creating a disruption in the congregation. So he's admonishing them to agree, to be in agreement, to affirm the same message. He'll talk about that message in a minute. Stop dividing themselves and become united in their mind and in their knowledge. Uh, So in effect, he wants them on the same page. He's not telling them to be exactly the same. But he's saying, I need you guys in agreement. The scripture says, can two walk together unless they are in agreement. So if we're going to walk worthy of the calling wherewith we have been called, we have to walk in some sense in agreement. And that's, that's Paul's statement here. Because he's heard that they're divided. Now what's this division about? We find that in the next uh, passages. Now I mean this. That each one of you is saying... I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. Now, what's the basis of their division? The basis of their division is they're creating groups that are identified with certain ministers. And by whom were you baptized? The gospel of Jesus Christ is presented by servants of the Lord. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Those servants are different in their personality. And certainly in their presentation style. And it's human for us to have a preference for certain personalities or certain approaches. The Corinthians, however, are using these differences to divide the body. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. Now, what's going on? Well, I'm one of the original Corinthians here. You know, when Paul came and preached to us, I was here. Okay. Not only that, someone says, I, I was actually baptized by Paul. Right? Well, I'm of Apollos. Apollos really can talk. He is really good. You know, Paul's not that good a preacher. Apollos is really good. And I accepted Jesus with with Apollos. You know, I met Peter once. And he was the main disciple. Paul wasn't even part of that group. 
I go all the way back to Peter. Cephas, we knew him in his real name. I am of Christ. I don't need Paul. I don't need Peter. I don't need Apollos. It's just me and Jesus. Okay? Now, you know how this works because we got the same problem. Personality cults are common. In, when I got into martial arts, who's your sensei? And how do you go back to the original guy? And that gives you your pecking order. Okay? Now, that doesn't sound like with humility and patience and tolerance for one another. That's about who, who's in charge and who's close to who's in charge and who's got a better pedigree and all that kind of stuff. So Paul says, Christ is not divided. Paul wasn't crucified for anyone. We were baptized into Christ. Not into a ministry, not into a congregation, not into a denomination. Paul wants to make that clear. The focus is not on the ministers. The focus is on coming to the Lord. And it's on the message, not the style of the message, that Paul wants them to focus. The Corinthians, much like the Americans tended to be more impressed with style than substance. Their Greco-Roman pagan background was established in poetry and theater. So rhetoric and presentation are their forte, just like ours. So this was the art of language for the Greco-Roman culture and the essence of wisdom. If you could talk well, if you could flow with speech, if you could say it really well, even if you didn't say anything, you could become popular and influential. And that becomes a problem in the Corinthian church. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 18 because I want to uh, illustrate something that I talked about with Apollos. In Acts chapter 18, verse 24, we'll just look at four verses here. Scripture says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, that means he's from the city of Alexandria, which is where the big library is. This is, this is the place where great learning takes place. This is an educated man. He was mighty in the scriptures. Okay? This guy knew the, the text. Now, what are the scriptures? What we call the Old Testament. Okay? And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Because there's no written gospels at this point. They will be. And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of John. He's got part of the message of the Messiah coming. He doesn't have the full message, but he is good in the scriptures. He's got some of the message, and he is a good speaker. 
And when he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, then we get this odd phrase, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now this is the gospel. He's got a good Old Testament foundation. He knows the baptism of John and what John said was going to happen. Both the judgment is coming and the Messiah is coming. He's got that down, but he doesn't have the whole, the whole message. So Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and say, well, you need to learn more here. And so they taught him the way of God more accurately. The early gospel followers, the followers of Yeshua or Jesus, were called people of the way. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll see that in the book of Acts. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Now what's Achaia? Corinth. Okay. And he was powerful, refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. The next verse. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And who are those disciples? They know the baptism of John, but they don't know the full gospel of Jesus, right? So, information is not, everybody's not on the same page with regard to background and information. It's important to know that Apollos is quite a talker. But he's fairly uninformed in the scripture, still needing to be taught himself. So, what is happening here is, the Corinthians, some of them are saying, man, we really like Apollos. And you know that Paul doesn't talk very well. And we know that from the scriptures as well. Paul's pretty clear about that. And we're going to talk about this next week. Because Paul's going to admit to them. Uh, because what people say, see, Paul was a great writer. He could write really well. But when he spoke, he wasn't all that um, rhetorical. So people say, oh, he's mighty when he writes. But if you've ever heard him, he kind of stumbles over his words. Harder to listen to somebody who stumbles over their words. Right? Oh, I give us Apollos. Well, but Paul knows more. Yeah, but who wants to hear that? Right? So this is what we're getting. I get more from this one. I get more from this one. I like Paul because he started it. Right? People are picking not for the word the message of God, they're doing it based on the ministers who are proclaiming it. Which brings us back now to Corinthians, uh, verse 18. So Paul says, look, I wasn't sent here to baptize. He's not saying baptism is not important. I get that all the time with people that read that verse. Well, Paul said, I wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The, the, the commission is to baptize the believers. And Paul did baptize. What he's saying is, that's not the focus. The focus is on the message. Right? So what is the message? And he's about to tell us that. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, I like the way that's said, we who are being saved, 
Get out of this idea, well, I'm saved. It sounds like you're done. You're not even half done, okay? Half-baked, right? We've got a lot of half-baked believers going on, right? We're not done, right? He who began a good work in us will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. We are being saved. Now, I know that takes some people to think, what about my assurance? We'll talk about that later. The issue is, we're in the process of being called out of the world, called to Christ, and being transformed into the image of God's Son. And, that, and we're doing that in community. So he says... The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us being saved, it's the power of God. What does Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. That's what he says to the Romans, right? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Oh, but which one of these ministers is the greatest? That's what they want to know. I hear this all the time on the campus at Cal Baptist. About, you know, this guy is the greatest minister and this guy is the one and this one is the one. And I'm reading his books and I I go to his church and all that kind of stuff. It's still going on. Right? And Paul's saying, that's not what God's doing. Okay? This is not about wisdom. In that sense, it's about a different wisdom. So where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater, the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, professing themselves to be wise... Paul says, they became fools and began to worship the Creator rather than the creation. Where is the focus of most people? On the creation and on the created, not on the Creator. Scientists study the creation, though they don't believe it's a creation necessarily. Behavioral scientists study the creature. We're supposed to have our focus on the Creator That's where the wisdom is. There's knowledge in those other things, but not wisdom. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Are you kidding me? God just put it in the rocks and then we'll discover it. Put it in people and we'll know it. God says, no, I put it in my word. And it will be proclaimed. And those who hear it will be saved. For indeed Jews ask for a sign and the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews it's a stumbling block and to the Gentiles it's utter foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and he's the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. So what is Paul saying? He says the main message is the message of the cross and the crucifixion of Christ. That message of the cross is the wisdom of God. It's not the wisdom of men. Men are seeking a different wisdom. 
And he takes two examples. First, the Jews. What are the Jews doing? They're studying the Scriptures. They have an advantage because they have the Scriptures. Much in every way. But what they do is they're looking for a sign that fulfills this so they can say, oh, that's the Messiah. Kept saying to Jesus, give us a sign. Give us a sign. He said, I'll give you a sign. The sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the fish. So I will be in the belly of the earth three days. Death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? That's the main focus. That's the main sign. That's a stumbling block to Israel. How can the Messiah die? The Messiah is supposed to reign. The Messiah is supposed to fix everything. The Messiah is supposed to do all of that. And he, but first the Messiah has to remove the sin of Jacob. So he says, your sins are forgiven. Oh, who can forgive sins but God? Right? It becomes a problem for them, even though they know the scriptures. It's a stumbling block that the Messiah would come, die, be buried, and rise from the dead. Now Paul explains that this stumbling is in part a blindness that God has placed over them for our sakes. So that we also might receive the message and come to faith. So in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul says, don't boast against the Jews uh, who have missed this. They may be enemies for the sake of the gospel, but for the sake of the promises of the fathers, they are beloved. And ultimately, all Israel will be saved. The Gentiles are also having a problem with this message. The idea that a crucifixion would bring salvation and forgiveness is utter foolishness. It is not the wisdom of the poets and the philosophers. In some sense, the wisdom of the world does not appreciate the wisdom of God who chose to save through this preaching of this foolishness, this message of the cross. It is, however, the wisdom of and power of God. And God's foolishness is wiser than men. And God's weakness is stronger than men's. So the cross is the basis of our unity in Christ. And that unity, Paul says, is a priority. Human wisdom leads to comparison and competition. And a sense of self-importance. Which causes us to boast in ourselves. And Paul's going to make that the error that the Corinthians are doing. They are somehow seeking their significance in who they're connected to in the ministry. So, we get to his last statement here. Which is one of my favorite passages. 1 Corinthians 1.26 So consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen 
the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, Paul now brings us back to humility and unity. So basically he says, look around you, guys. Look at all your fellow believers. Have you ever been embarrassed by some of the Christians in the world? I don't mean by some of the dumb things we say and do. I mean, sometimes we're just not the upper crust. A lot of, a lot of people want to try to make the religion sophisticated so it'll be attractive. So they want to hide, you know, you got certain people, you just don't want them to know you're connected to them, right? The reality is, I call the church God's Special Olympics. And I've used this illustration before, I want to use it again. God takes someone who can't run, and he puts him on his cross-country team. He takes someone whose arms don't work, and he's going to be his shot putter. In other words, God takes people who can't possibly accomplish what has to be accomplished, so that when it's accomplished, it's known that it came from God. If God selected, God cherry-picked the best and the brightest of the world, then we could say, of course, God knew the best, and He picked the best. But He doesn't. He picks the things that are nothing, the things that are weak, the things that are meaningless, and He's going to give to them His wisdom. So the reality is that those who are really part of the body of Christ, if they really analyze themselves, they're simply a sinner in need of salvation. They are breathing dirt that just hopes in God. And the minute we think we're something, or we let other people think we're something, we're missing that point. Before God, we make an argument. He says this, so that no one may boast in God's presence. Imagine the judgment. I want to take you to the judgment scene. Standing before the Bema. You can give an account of yourself. God, I was baptized by Paul. I met Cephas once. And I was one of the original congregations at Corinth. And God's going to go, wow. Come on in. That's just absurd. But that's how we get. What 
Jesus said, when you have done all these things, you are to say, we are unworthy and unprofitable servants who have only done that which is our duty. There's no place to boast before God. God is not impressed with any of us. So what Paul says is, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now where is he getting that? He's getting that from Jeremiah chapter 9. I'd like you to look at that. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. So even if you have these things, why would you boast in them? You didn't earn them. You have nothing that wasn't given to you. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, (coughs) excuse me, who exercises loving kindness or mercy, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Now how do I boast that I know the Lord? Do I say, I know more Bible verses than you? I'm ordained? Any of that stuff? No. No. What matters is this. If I know the Lord, and I know what God does, and He's my Father, I'm going to be functioning the way the family functions. I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to act in justice and righteousness on the earth. Because that's what the Father delights in. And I will walk in those ways to do that. I have to be humble. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They don't think they're coming from you. They know they're not coming from you. They're coming from God. So I want to go back to Corinthians because I want you to look at one particular verse that I hope you'll think about all week. I know that uh, when I first started this series, I was trying to follow the text as the readings, you know, the weekly readings were about a week behind. I think I'll catch up by next week. Uh, So this reading was really last week's reading, but um, it's still a verse worth meditating on throughout the week. Verse 30. But by whose doing? Our doing, His doing. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. No, I chose Him. Are you kidding me? The grace of God came to you. He opened your eyes so that you would see the glory of the gospel. And He humbled you in that context to bring you to Him. That's the calling. 
And he has become to us the wisdom from God. Wisdom is in Christ. And righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All those things come to us. My calling to Christ that makes me holy is His doing. My righteousness that I begin to, He is in me both to will and to do of His good pleasure. What pleases Him? What pleases Him? Mercy. Justice. He has shown you. I mean, we've, you know all these verses. This is not about spiritual pedigree or the right denomination or the right church or the right minister. It's about humility before God who in His grace and His mercy decided to bring, to bring you to Himself. And for all eternity, you will bear the name child of God. How'd you earn that? You didn't earn it. It's His doing. So that in that redemption, we have no place to boast. Now, if I have no place to boast, I have no way of usurping myself over you. And it's like an airline. Get in the airline. I say to the person next to me, How'd you get in here? A ticket. What'd you pay for your ticket, right? Always got to compare ourselves. I got my ticket cheaper than you. I'm better than you. No. The reality is, what brings us in the unity of this place is the grace of God. And grace is not based on who we are but who He is. Therefore, we should be humble with one another, long-suffering with one another, allowing one another to struggle so that we all come into the unity of the faith. So Paul begins with an explanation that our unity in Christ is because of that cross. I love that in this sanctuary, the cross is in the back. When you step into this sanctuary, you have come by way of the cross. You are not heading to the cross. You have already come to the cross. The Son is now bringing you to the Father. The ark is on this side. And as you enter in, the cross is behind you. And the kingdom is ahead of us, and we're walking in that direction. But we all came in the same door, all through the cross, all through the blood, all through the foolishness of that message, which is the message. And if we all got here that way, we're one. And we can differ on our theology, and we can differ on exactly how we're going to do the, the, our obedience. Just like a family, we're not going to all get along. But we are family and we are one. And we have no place in here. And in the presence of... See, this is the trick. Oh, I'm not boasting in the presence of God. I'm boasting in front of you guys. 
Well, who's there when two or three of us are gathered? Right? Whenever the body is there, the Lord is there, we're in His presence, we ought not boast against each other. had a conversation this week with a student wanting to know to what extent they could be involved in leadership in their church. I couldn't get around the idea that they really wanted to be acknowledged as leadership in the church. And I said, it's not about leadership, it's about serving. What did Jesus say? The one who will be great among you will be the servant of all. The mindset is humility. The mindset is oneness. The mindset is being on the same page. And that's not my page. And it's not your page. It's his page. And Paul's going to drive that home throughout this entire book. When he talks to them about their marriages, when he talks to them about their ministries, when he talks to them about their gifting, when he talks to them about their theology, when he talks to them about their behavior, all through it, it's all going to be about the issue of unity. So, in the next week, he's going to use the next two chapters, he didn't write chapters, but you know, to explain his own ministry among them and to explain to them what they are doing is not expressing maturity, spiritual maturity, but just the opposite. They are showing that they are babes in Christ and immature believers and their disunity is what proves that. Not their theology, not the extent of their ministry, the extent of their unity establishes the sign of their maturity. Because after all, loving one another will be the sign even to the world that we are His disciples. Let's pray.